Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Good morning. We are continuing on in our sermon series looking at the book of Joshua. Today we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. Now normally here at the Oaks, if you're new, normally we would have you stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for God's Word. But we're going to be taking a look at a kind of extended passage here this morning. So, and I want to provide some commentary kind of as we go. So go ahead and keep your seats. And uh, we're going to be in Joshua 9. There should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And the text will also be on the screen. So we're going to be in Joshua 9 now. Just for context, as we go into this text, if you guys remember for the, over the last couple of weeks, Israel has been kind of systematically going through and conquering lands that God had promised them. So if you remember, they, they conquered Jericho. And, uh, and then they also, last week we read about how they conquered uh, Ai or Ae, however you want to pronounce that. And, um, and so word has begun to spread throughout the land that Israel is, you know, 2-0. Two, two oh. uh, they're doing better than the Bengals, okay? Uh, ooh, oh, uh, I, got, I, I immediately turned off <laughs> several people here today, okay? So, uh, so, uh, so word is spreading, okay? Word is spreading that, that they are winning and everybody else is losing. And so what begins to happen is all of the other tribes and nations and people groups that are around them decide, hey, it's not going to go well for us if Israel picks us off one by one. So we're going to band together and we're going to form an alliance against Israel. And so that's where we find ourselves here today in Joshua uh, verse 9, beginning in verse 1. And the, again, the text will be on screen. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Havites, the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But then there's a people group who decide not to join them, and they, these are the Gibeonites. Verse 3, but then... Or, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. And they went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, to the Gibeonites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So immediately the, the Israelites are skeptical. And they're like, ah, But what if you're tricking us? And so the Gibeonites are like, okay, we're not going to talk to you anymore. We're going to go talk to Joshua. So in verse 8, it says, they say to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? Same story. They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. 
and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread, verse 12. Here is our bread. It was warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the Gibeonites here have successfully tricked Joshua and the the leaders uh, of the Israelites to agree to a covenant where Israel will not attack them. They've done this now through cunning and deception. Uh, They lie to the Israelites about where they are from in order to essentially negotiate a peace treaty. So in verse 16, they get discovered. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Baroth, and Kireth, Jerem. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a little kid, uh, probably about eight or nine years old, uh, wallpaper was all the rage, okay? Now, apparently it's making a comeback. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard that wallpaper is making a comeback. I guess we don't learn from our mistakes. Uh, But uh, wallpaper was all the rage, okay? And my mom had just purchased this wallpaper strip. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It was just like a strip that would go down the middle of the wall. Not at the top, not at the bottom, right? It would just go right through the middle of the wall, this strip of wallpaper. And um, I thought, as an eight, nine-year-old kid, well, it is paper, and what do you do with paper? You draw on paper, right? So so as an eight- or nine-year-old kid, this with this freshly installed wallpaper that was going up even in our stairwell, I decided I was going to, uh, bless my family with some amazing art on this wallpaper. And so I got busy with my markers. Now, these aren't the markers of 2023, like the washable markers, right? These are the markers of like 1989, okay? That like whatever you put it on, it was there forever, okay? So I'm drawn on this wall. And um, after I finished a few lines of absolute art on the wall, it struck me that my mother may not have the same appreciation 
for what I had done as I did. And so I consulted with my younger brother, Matt. And Matt was about five or six. He's about three years younger than me. And I explained to him that it was only a matter of time before mom would see that drawing on the wallpaper and she would be very angry. And, um, you know, and she would ask who did it. And so I convinced my brother Matt that we weren't going to tattle on each other. We weren't going to do that. We were going to have a code where we did not, you know, rat on each other. And so um, otherwise, you know, I would be punished. And so Matt agreed that he would not uh, tell anybody who did it. But then I also had this conversation with Matt where I said, but here's the, the, dilemma, the dilemma, though. If none of us, if we all agree that we don't tell mom who did it, mom might punish all of us, right? That's, that, that was a tactic back in the 80s, right? She might punish all of us, and she, she might. And so Matt was with me on this dilemma, and I was like, you don't want to be punished, do you, Matt? And he's like, no. And I was like, so here's what we should do. You should go, and you should confess to mom that you did the drawings. And since you're younger, she's more likely to have like mercy on you than she would on me, you know? Um, and so uh, Matt was like, yep, yeah, that sounds like a plan. And so, so uh, this is still a point of contention in my family, by the way, to this day. So, uh, so, so Matt agrees that he's gonna go uh, you know, he'll, he'll say that he did it, and certainly Ma, there will not be any severe punishment because he's younger than me. And so I listen around the corner while Matt goes, and, and he confesses to my crimes. And, um, and everything went as planned, except he was severely punished, okay? And he has still not forgiven, forgiven me to this day for my manipulative ways, uh, but the moral of the story is this, okay? Because there's a moral of the story. The moral of the story is this. Sometimes you can be deceitful and have bad motivations and everything works out to your favor. That's not a very Christian lesson, is it? Not a very Christian lesson. But that's, that was my experience in that story. And that's kind of almost what we see here in this text today. The Gibeonites realize that their land is about to be taken from them, from the Israelites, because it's been promised to Israel by God. And so they come up with a plan to deceive, to manipulate, to defraud, and to lie to get what they want. So they strike this deal with Joshua and Israel. And even though they're wheeling and dealing in bad faith and that they're, they're frauds, they got what they wanted in the end. And the position that God takes, that Joshua takes, that Israel takes uh, of this agreement is essentially this, a deal's a deal. A deal's a deal. We honor uh, what we agree to. And by the way, this agreement that was made between Israel and the Gibeonites, it was forever. And it was enforced essentially forever. 400 years later, Israel gets their first king, King Saul. And he breaks this agreement with the Gibeonites, and he attacks them. And the subsequent king, King David, when he takes the throne, there's a great famine in the land. And God tells David, the famine in the land is because of the way that you have broken the covenant 
uh, with the Gibeonites that you made as a nation 400 years ago. And so David has to go to the Gibeonites and uh, make it right by them. And so this, this uh, and you can go look that up in 2 Samuel 21. So the posture of God is that covenant matters, promise matters, you honor your commitments, a deal is a deal. Now, this story has all these layers, layers about covenants, um, layers about how what appears to be common sense isn't always common sense. Uh, There's layers about uh, bad leadership. I mean, certainly we see here the people seem to demonstrate a little bit more wisdom than even Joshua and uh, the, the leaders of Israel. They didn't even bother, it says, to, cons- to consult God. And so uh, there's all of these layers, but what I want us to zoom in on today is how this narrative and virtually every other narrative that we see in Scripture, how this narrative invites us to rethink our understanding of who's in and who's out. And I think that this story, along with other stories that we'll be taking a look at at, uh, today, uh, challenge us to rethink who's in and even how they they get in. And so today we're going to look at three invitations for us, and these are the the, the invitations that we have this morning. You're invited to see your inability to be enough, you're invited to wrestle with grace, and you're invited to make a deal. These are the three invitations that we have this morning. So the first one, you are invited to see your inability to be enough. Uh, Joshua goes to them after their deception is revealed, and he says, why did you guys go about it this way? And then um, we haven't read this yet, but in verse 24, and it will be up on the screen, they answer... Joshua and why they did what they did. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. We are in your hand. Do whatever you want with us. In other words, we're we're helpless in this situation. We're not enough. We're not enough. Uh, The stories of the Bible are constantly inviting us into the reality to see that we are not enough, especially when it comes to the kingdom of God like earning God's approval and pressing God, you are not enough, right? And and, and we would know this, like a lot of you are like, yeah, I agree with that. I know the verses, right? That, um, That it's by grace that we have been saved, not of our works, right? We know that. Uh, We know that it's, that the wages of sin is death, right? Our work, our, all of our works are sinful and it's, and we've earned death, but that the gift of God is eternal life, that it's given to us. It's a gift. And so in our heads, I think, we know that we aren't enough, but our actions often betray us. C.S. Lewis uh, talks in his book, uh, The Four Loves, he talks about how we're constantly battling with ourselves in this desire to be enough, even to the point of even when we sin, and then we immediately go into uh, to repenting, and trying to 
you know, be forgiven, that even in that act of repentance that we oftentimes are like, wow, I, I repented pretty good. God probably accepts this repentance. And it's like, oh, here I go again. I'm, even in my repentance, I'm struggling to be enough. We're constantly trying to prove our worth. And by the way, not just to God, we try to prove our worth to everyone. Because there's this sense in us that we aren't enough, not just for God, but we're not enough for others, if we are honest. Right? Why? Ask yourself these questions. They sting a little. Why does your spouse think you're not enough? Ouch. Why aren't you enough for your parents? Why aren't you enough for your friends? Why aren't you enough for your boss or at work? Why aren't you enough? And there's this sense in us that we are not enough. I think all of us, if we were honest, would admit that we walk around with a kind of imposter syndrome. I do. I walk around with imposter syndrome. Why am I not enough? Why am I not enough? I think it's because we're human. The Gibeonites here aren't the only ones who aren't enough to get into the kingdom. Certainly them, but that's literally the story of everyone. Everyone is not enough. In Mark 9, Jesus comes across this demon-possessed boy and his father, and all of the other disciples have attempted to heal this boy, and none of them have been enough. They've all failed. And so Jesus is interacting with this father, and the father says to him, none of them could do it. If, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. And look with me at Mark uh, 9, uh, 23, and I think it's verse 24. I think it'll be on the screen. And, and uh, it says, Jesus says, if you can, and a lot of people, by the way, don't think that that's an exclamation point, like that's added in the translation after the fact. There wasn't punctuation. Many scholars believe that Jesus was actually asking him a question. If I can, if you, you know, if. And Jesus is sensing like, wait a second, this guy isn't sure if I can. This guy doesn't believe. And so Jesus pushes back on him in 23, and he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, I, I can do it, but think, all things are possible for the one who believes. If you believe, if you believe enough, your son can be healed. And so that says in verse 24, immediately the father of the child cries out, and he says, I, I do believe. And then he says, help my unbelief. See, the man says, I believe, and then he immediately realizes that he doesn't believe. He can't even believe enough to save his own son. And when he's brought to the end of himself, when he realizes that he is not enough, he has to go to Jesus and say, help my unbelief. I've got nothing. I can't do it, Jesus. You will have to do this for me. I'm not enough. I can't even believe, Jesus. My only hope is if you believe enough for the two of us. And so what does Jesus do? Does he say, well, you had your chance, your chance to heal your son, but you didn't have enough belief. I'm out. No. Jesus says, your son is healed. Jesus heals his son. Story after story after story in the Bible 
is people coming to the ends of themselves, realizing that they're not enough, and they resort sometimes to sheer desperation, survival instincts, or in the case of the Gibeonites, our text here today, to cheating and deception and fraud. And the weird thing about God is, somehow God always carves out a place for people who want in, especially the people who say, I'm here, I want to be in, I got nothing. I'm not enough. Think of this, I mean, you guys are probably familiar. Think, it's like every story in the Bible, the prodigal son, right? He comes to the end of himself after he's blown all of his father's inheritance, after he's spent it on, on partying and prostitution and, all, and just all kinds of reckless living. And he comes to the end of himself, and then he says, I think I should probably just go to my father and maybe he will let me in, even as a slave. Where are you, though? Have you, have you come to the end of yourself yet? Or are you still pretending like you are enough for God? Like, if I'm not even enough for my wife and kids and friends, if I have a sense of my own imposter syndrome, uh, what makes me think I'll ever be enough for God? And oddly enough, that kind of place is exactly the best starting place for God to do his best work with us. So that's the, that's the first invitation for all of us, is we're invited to see that we are not enough. And the second thing that we are then invited into after that is we're invited to wrestle with grace. We're invited to wrestle with grace. You're invited to wrestle with grace towards yourself. Like, could God actually could God actually like forgive me and accept me and let me in? Like, is that real? And we wrestle with that with ourselves, and then we wrestle sometimes also with the grace that we see God showing to others. We see that here in our text today, uh, verse 18 and 19. But the people of Israel did not attack them, the Gibeonites, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the congregation murmured against the leaders. They're wrestling with the fact that these Gideonites are not getting what they deserve. In verse 19, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. See, once the people of Israel had discovered that they had been defrauded, that they had entered into this agreement under a false pretense, they were kind of like, hey, wait a second, this wasn't an agreement at all. Right? If, if I enter into a contract or a covenant with someone and I commit fraud, right, the other party can say, oh, wait a second, you misrepresented yourself. You were dealing in bad faith. You're a fraud. We do not have to honor this agreement. And that's essentially what the people were kind of hoping for here. Like, wait a second, we don't have to honor this covenant to them because they lied to us. They cheated us. But the leaders persist and say, no. We will honor the covenant. We will be gracious to them and let them in. We will honor our side of the deal, even though they have broken their side of the deal. Because in God's economy, a deal's a deal. And this is grace to the Gibeonites. And the Bible invites us to wrestle with the reality that God's grace is often, perhaps, more reckless than we would like. I mean, again, the, the Israelites weren't exactly happy 
with the way this was working out for the Gibeonites. And when we look at the New Testament, right, the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, and we see all these crazy stories uh, about all these people, uh, we, we walk away and we, it should kind of blow our minds. I mean, isn't it scandalous to know that there are sex workers, frauds, adulterers, polygamists, idol worshipers, and murderers in the kingdom of God. And the reason why we know that is because in Matthew, all of those sins characterize Jesus' grandparents. They were sex workers, frauds, adulterers, polygamists, idol worshipers, and murderers. Jesus' grandparents. The Bible like should blow our minds with the scandalous nature of God's grace. In Luke 23, yet another example. Um, a murdering thief is hanging next to Jesus, dying on the cross for his crimes. And um, we know the outcome of what Jesus says to him, but if we go back and we look at this man, his interactions with Jesus, they're not exactly great. Like he starts off, it says in, in some texts, that both, both thieves were kind of mocking Jesus initially. So he was initially mocking Jesus. And then as a little bit of time kind of went on, uh, he decides, uh, maybe this guy is actually innocent. We are guilty for our crimes. Like, we deserve this. We've done bad things. This guy here, I'm not so sure about. And then he comes to a place where I think he begins to say, wait a second, this guy is God. And we'll see why. Um, but... This guy never once asks for forgiveness of his sins. That, that makes us itchy, right? It's like if we were to say, well, how, would, how does someone become a Christian? Well, you know, you got to repent of your sins and ask forgiveness for your sins. This guy doesn't do that. He doesn't understand atonement. He's, I don't think he's ever heard of justification by faith. He doesn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, this guy, he's just, I mean, he's a loser, murdering thief hanging on a cross, dying next to Jesus. And all he knows is that Jesus must be God. And he thinks all these people out here that are, that are mocking him, I think they're wrong. He must be God. And all he says to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. I know that you're God. And all I want you to do is just, just remember me. At the end of himself, when he isn't enough, all he can do is wrestle with the possibility that this man dying next to him is God and that God is somehow gracious and that God would let him have the audacity to let him in. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That should blow our minds. The grace of God towards those who have come to an end of themselves makes me uncomfortable until I remember the sinner that I am and that the radical, scandalous nature of grace that is shown towards all of these ridiculous people in the Bible is also shown towards the ridiculous person in this room and all of the other ridiculous people in this room. C.S. Lewis says this. It's a, it's a great quote. He says, Either... We give up trying to be good, or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if you are really going to try to meet all the demands made on the self, it will not have enough left over to live on. 
The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And yourself, which is thus being starved and hampered and wounded at every turn, will get angrier. In the end, you will either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, lives for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than you would have been if you had remained, frankly, selfish. And what Lewis is arguing for here isn't that we just do whatever we want. It's not what he's saying. What Lewis is saying is, is if we are trying to constantly have, relate to God through terms of being good, we're either going to end up in a place of despair and we just give up, or in this place of pride where we become impossible to live with. But what it doesn't lead to is an actual relationship with God. Like that is built on grace. And so the next invitation for us isn't just to realize that we're not enough and just to stay in the mud and the mire and say, oh, I'm not enough. No, the next step is in an invitation to wrestle with the fact that God has shown you grace and others grace. And then lastly, you're invited to make a deal. And we see them kind of push this idea of wanting to be in and make a deal at all costs, the Gibeonites. And so we see that in uh, Joshua 9, uh, 6, 11, and there's like multiple verses that we're going to be kind of looking at here, I think. So first, Joshua 9, verse 6, And they, the Gibeonites, went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a great distance, or a great dis- from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Make a deal. Verse 11, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant, make a deal with us. Verse 19, after they had made this deal, the covenant, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, let lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So Joshua makes a deal with them and he honors it even when it's discovered that they're frauds, that they're cheats. Because again, in God's economy, a deal is a deal. So what kind of deal are we invited to make with God? Right? Maybe a health, wealth, and prosperity deal. God, if, if you love me, you'll make me a multimillionaire. Right? Is that the deal that we make with God? Eh, that's not really a deal where we've come to the end of ourself in desperation, realizing that we're not enough. That's not the kind of deal that we see here. Um, so what kind of deal are we invited to make with God? I think in verse 25, um, I don't know if I gave this text in the, in, uh, there for them in the back or not. I don't know if it'll be on screen. But Joshua 9.25, I think, is the posture of what kind of deal we make with God. And it says, these are the Gibeonites speaking to Israel. And they say, and now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. How could they say that? How could they say, hey, the deal that we're going to make with you, because we're at the end of ourselves, 
We're at the end of ourselves. We're just going to trust you to do what's right. How could they do that? Maybe they had heard, I don't know, this is pure speculation, but maybe they had heard of Rahab. And they're like, wait, Rahab made a deal too, right? It worked out for her. I don't know. But what we do know is that they, when they, when they had that posture uh, towards uh, Israel, it was a posture of trust and hope. It's like, hey, all we can do, all we can do is trust and hope that you will do right by us. And I think that's the posture, that's the kind of deal that we make with God. Hey, God, I'm not enough. I'm relying 100% on your grace. Would you make a deal with a wretched person where I give you nothing and you do whatever you want with me? And I think that the journey of being a Christian is actually one where we wrestle with God, come to the end of ourselves in a place of complete mistrust on our own ability to be enough. And we come to this place where we make this deal where we say, Jesus, do what, do what you will. Do what you will with me. And the one thing that, again, we see over and over and over and over and over again is that God deals kindly with people who draw near to him for almost any reason. Like even when it's for self-preservation, when people want in, it's like God just lets them in. Even when it's for questionable motivations. It seems like... Um, God is gracious even when he knows he's being taken advantage of. If it means that he gets us to buy in. Again, the, un the unbelieving father with his demon-possessed son, uh, he says, uh, Jesus, I don't believe. You're going to have to believe for me. I've come to the end of myself. And Jesus says, deal. Doubting Thomas, who had seen his friend and mentor and savior butchered, on a cross, says in a room full of his friends who are saying, hey, we've seen Jesus is alive. Thomas says, I saw what they did to that man. You don't come back from that. I won't believe until I put my hands on the scars on his body. And Jesus says, you've come to the end of yourself, Thomas. You've got nothing left. You're not enough. Deal. The dying convict next to convict next to Jesus, just simply says, I've got nothing left. Here's my Hail Mary. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus says, deal. Over and over and over again, we see God making bad deals that do not favor Him with bad people who take advantage of Him, and all of it comes at God's expense and the sinner's blessing. And over and over and over again, we break our end and God keeps His. So maybe you're here today and your faith is in absolute tatters. <laughs> uh, maybe you also have no belief left. And yet you're here. And I actually think uh, if that's you, you're probably in a really good place for God to do some work. Um, there is a Jesus you discover that you never knew when you shed all pretense of having figured God out and put him in a box. Um, my daughter told me, my daughter Summer, she's 17, she told me a, a couple weeks ago 
we were having this family conversation, and she said, you know, when I was a toddler, when I was just, a, you know, two, three years old, just a toddler, and we would be driving home, I, you know, I would sometimes fall asleep in my car seat, and you would carry me in. But sometimes I wouldn't fall asleep. Sometimes I would actually be awake. But I would pretend to be asleep. <laughs> she said, I would, I would deceive you. I would pretend to be asleep because I, I was so tired. I was so tired. I knew I couldn't walk. I couldn't even drag my body inside. And so I would pretend to be asleep so that you would carry me in. Now, when I heard that story, do you think I said, how dare you trip me? No, no, no. Do you think I cared? Do you think that the deal that I wanted with her was one where she had earned her right to be loved and carried inside? Do you think it bothered me that she would try to deceive me to get me to carry her inside? Do you think that it bothered me that she couldn't get inside on her own accord? You know, say what you want about her deception, but she it reveals what she was doing there reveals that she knew something about my character and what I would do, doesn't it? She understood the character of her father. She believed something about me that was true. And that was, even under a false pretense, I know that he will carry me inside. Could it be that that's how God wants us to deal with him? Could it be that the Father doesn't entirely care about how perfect or not perfect your approach has been, your belief has been, or whether or not you've carried yourself? Could it be that at the end of yourself, when, you have, when all you have left to give to God is broken promises and deception and doubt, that you are still welcomed in, carried in? The reason that we know this to be true is because Christ died to make it so. Every week we celebrate communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. And we, re we remember that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for you. And on the cross, Jesus made a deal, a deal based in grace, where he takes all of our doubts, all of our insecurities, all of our unbelief, all of our attempts to be all of our attempts to be right, all of our attempts to be enough. And those things are crucified with Christ so that I can get in on his terms, and his terms are unconditional, radical, provocative grace. And you might utterly and will utterly fail on your end, but he will not fail on his end because in God's economy, a deal's a deal. And so communion for us today is a reminder that we are in because God completes his end of the deals, even when we do not. Jesus went to the end, finished. It is finished. Went to the end for us. And so in a moment here, if you would say, hey, I'm emptied of myself, I bring no good works to the table, then, you're, then that's the person who's invited to the table. 
You come, right, when you come up here and you participate in communion, you're bringing nothing, nothing but your doubts and insecurities and sin. And Jesus is like, deal. You come up and Jesus' body and blood covers you. And so if that's a true reality for you, you're going to be invited to come up in a moment and participate in communion. You do not have to be a member of this church. Now, if that's not true for you, then uh, we would encourage you to not come forward and to participate in something that's not true for you. Uh, but instead, I would love to have a conversation with you uh, if, you're, if you're interested in doing that. So the band's going to come and play, and, uh, and then communion will be served. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. And even when we are not enough, when we come to you broken and deceitful and with bad motivations, I mean, Lord, I, is there ever a time where I come to you with 100% pure motivations? I don't think so. And yet, you allow me to come into your throne like I am right now, boldly. I thank you for that. I thank you for relating to us on terms of grace. Lord, I still wrestle with that every week. I wrestle with the grace, not just that you show me, but the grace that you show my enemies, the people I don't like. Lord, help me to see um, that I need you too, that I need your grace too. And help us as a church to begin relating to you through this lens of total surrender to you and your grace. Whatever you want to do with us, Lord, we trust you. We put our trust and hope in you that you will do good by us. So we give you our lives. We, we enter into that deal with you, the deal that was sealed and bought for us by Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.